This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Diana Henriquez is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust, that was made into an HBO film with Robert De Niro. A senior financial writer for the New York Times since 1989, she is a George Polk winner and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. But today, she's here to talk about her new book, A First-Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. She joins me now for a closer look. Diana, why was it important to you to do so much detailed, in-depth reporting on the lead-up to Black Monday 2008? It makes it seem almost inconsequential now. Remind us a little bit about what happened. Well, Arthur, I think 1987 was far worse than we remember. But I think even more, it was far worse than we knew at the time. Um, there was a different uh, media ecosystem then. You know, the information was just was not as readily available everywhere as it is today. And what I found in talking to people, particularly younger people, I mean, even anybody under 50, um, you'd say you know, Black Monday, 1987, and you'd get this kind of blank look. Even people, young people who knew about 1929 did not know that Black Monday was more than twice as worse than the worst day of 29. So it had somehow slipped out of our national memory, and I couldn't figure out why. And I, I wanted to to try to unpack it in a way that would show why it was so important. And to do that, you really had to start at the beginning of the 80s and document the uh, tectonic changes that were happening in the marketplace during those years that climaxed to Black Monday. So that I wanted to make sure people didn't think of Black Monday as just a, a day when the market fell and fell spectacularly, but a day when the market because of a buildup of pressures and changes and unanticipated forces, the market not only fell, it almost fell apart. And that was why it was so important. It was the first modern market crash, really. Now, you write that <clears throat> the 87 crash actually began much earlier with two eccentric oil men from Texas and silver trading. Yes, well, the silver crisis of 1980, we both remember it. I know it was one of those great, great uh, uh, made-for-Hollywood scandals uh, of the era. But the, the interesting thing to me about the silver crisis and why I use it to tell this story, to get us started on the road towards Black Monday, is because it was the first crisis that sprawled all across the regulatory lines. It was a it, it was a trading activity happening in the commodity markets, silver. A prudential um, bait. Yes, and drew in uh, brokerage firms being regulated by the SEC, banks being regulated by the Fed, um, international investors. It caused Silver Thursday, a day of terrible turmoil on the New York Stock Exchange. So I opened the book 
with Paul Volcker, then uh, uh, the Federal Reserve chairman, suddenly learning that he's got a crisis on his hands blowing up in the silver market. And at that point, Arthur, he doesn't even know who regulates the silver market. And trying to, to show how unfamiliar and strange it was to regulators in 1980 to have a crisis become so contagious. They were used to a world where assets traded in silos, stocks traded over here, bonds traded over there, derivatives traded over there. And all of a sudden, all those walls were coming down. And there was an interesting congressional hearing that I uh, depict in the book, where a stern uh, government oversight committee congressman is saying, well, you know, did you guys coordinate well enough? He's got all of them lined up there in front of him. He said, you know, you were this was going on here and this was going on there. Did you coordinate well enough? And the basic answer was, well, maybe not. But if this ever happens again, eyes roll skyward. Of course, it's never going to happen again. If we ever meet a messy, sprawling crisis like this, we'll do better next time. How did we avoid the crisis? In 1980 was just pure luck. Uh, if the silver price had not recovered that Thursday. Now, that was a... Um, so markets worked. Well, not quite. Silver recovered because of trading restrictions put in place in the futures markets to allow trading for liquidation only. In a way, trading stopped and markets stopped falling. But that message, you know, the... the the need to intervene in the machinery of the market to stop that crisis uh, was something that people kind of missed. It happened at the exchange level. COMEX here in New York um, you know, intervened and didn't allow free trading in silver, perfectly within their rules, although, as you may remember, other it was disputed in litigation um, for years as to whether or not they had acted appropriately. But they did have to step in and protect their market from a free fall, which was a, a pretty worrisome foreshadowing of where we were going. Now, you point out that institutional investors started moving into the market and indexing why was this going to become a significant issue for the markets? Well, it was a, an example of what remains a significant issue for the markets, Arthur, which is giant investors doing the same thing at the same time. I mean, that is always going to be a destabilizing force uh, in the market machinery. And the regulators and many, many Wall Street investors felt that this didn't happen. There, you know, there were all kinds of investors all pursuing all kinds of different strategies, and they would offset one another. One would be zigging when the other would be zagging. One would be buying when the other would be selling. But with the rise of very similar investment strategies, um, indexing was one. Um, a hedging strategy called portfolio insurance was another. Index arbitrage, which played the futures markets off against the cash market, was a third. With the rise of these strategies and their embrace by these giant institutional investors managing billions of dollars in the stock market, a, a new thing, um, the impact that they were having on the way the market behaved very quickly became evident. We started to talk about witching hours. We started to see wild swings in the market, interday swings going up, down, up, down, on no apparent news whatsoever. And 
it, it was clear that um, the market machinery was having trouble adapting to the way these giant investors were trading. So indexing was part of it, but it was only part of it. But the real risk was giants all running over to the same side of the boat at the same time, all doing the same thing at the same time. And that remains a problem for us today, as you know. One of your chapters was titled, as I recall, Chicago versus New York. Yeah. How did that play out? Well, the Chicago futures markets were really um, a remarkable uh, laboratory of financial engineering in the 70s um, when they uh, brought into being the first uh, foreign currency futures, the first interest rate futures contracts. And this was introducing financial derivatives into a market that had previously served farmers and food producers, you know, the pork bellies and soybean futures. So suddenly, uh, ways to speculate or hedge your positions in financial assets became available in Chicago. And Chicago as a culture had a much higher risk tolerance than New York. It still does. They lived it. I mean, if markets weren't volatile, they couldn't make any money. So they had a, you know, they, they would, they just, you know, breathed and slept volatility and were not terrified of it. Um, so with the introduction of these financial derivatives, most importantly, as I'm sure you will remember, in April of 1982, the S&P 500 futures index contract started trading on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And it became the hottest introduction of a futures contract in history. And within a few years, everybody, state old New York banks and pension funds and the college endowments, everybody was using S&P 500 futures contracts. Some to speculate, some in what they believed to be hedging. hedging. But what had been missed in the analysis, and I try to lay this out in the as we march down this road to Black Monday, was the way that the introduction of these stock index futures shackled the futures markets to the cash markets. They now moved in tandem, and yet they were completely different creatures. It's almost like you had put, um, you know, a, a greyhound and a, and a Clydesdale in the same uh, harness and tried to have them pulling the same wagon. They had different metabolisms. The futures market had to, you know, settle up overnight. The stock market didn't. Stocks didn't trade all the time. There were halts in trading for various good and valid reasons. But the futures market assumed there would always be fresh prices for the stocks that they were pegging their futures off of. So it was the beginning of uh, a, a dependency, an interconnection whose impact was poorly understood um, and, and, and poorly analyzed. And as we learned on Black Monday, um, could, be, could be catastrophic. Now. You write about Paul Volcker as being a significant factor in the markets at the time. What do you think was his most important contribution to the stability of our markets? Well, you obviously would have to look from an economic standpoint at his um, uh, determination to tame the runaway inflation that had plagued the country all through the 70s. That was a hard 
task. It, it made him extremely unpopular in a lot of places, particularly among Democrats in Congress who blamed him for costing Jimmy Carter re-election to the White House. But reducing uh, the expectation of ever higher prices was an enormous achievement. From the standpoint of the markets, though, Paul Volcker was a traditionalist. I, um, as I lay out my my uh, characters here in this book. There, there are the engineers, the experimenters, the guys in Chicago, the guys in Berkeley coming up with marvelous new academic strategies. But then there are the people who are the traditionalists, who are trying to sustain a market that they know, a market that they know works, a market that they understand. And Paul Volcker really fell on that side of the divide. Diana, we talk about Paul Volcker. Why do you think he resigned? Well, that's an interesting question, uh, a little bit outside the, the purview of the, of the march toward Black Monday. President Reagan had had a number of appointees that he could make uh, to the Federal Reserve. In a way, uh, Paul Volcker was standing right where Janet Yellen is standing today, uh, in that seats were going to become open on the board. And as um, those seats were filled by um, the Reagan administration, they were filled by people who were uh, more concerned about economic growth than they were about inflation control. And there had been an incident in the spring of 1987 where um, uh, Volcker had been outvoted on a small interest rate rise. He had opposed it, and he'd been outvoted. He marched in to Treasury Secretary Jim Baker that day at lunch and handed in a letter of resignation on a yellow pad. Baker persuaded him to you know, think about it to calm down to you know let it ride. Markets would have were gyrating just on rumors that Volcker would leave. So Volcker said, okay, he would calm down and 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 wait it out. And a little face saving change was made in the interest rate rise. But I think he saw the writing on the wall. I think he realized that um, his ability to command the Federal Reserve uh, Open Market Committee in the way that he felt he needed to was behind him. And as we as we know. Uh, he was replaced by Alan Greenspan, who became one of the longest, one of the longest-serving uh, Fed chairs in uh, in history, and actually made his reputation on Black Monday. I mean, Alan Greenspan had been in office just ten weeks when Black Monday hit, and he was a he was a wild card. I mean, nobody really knew what to expect from him. He was a cipher, you sort of a player to be named later, as they say in sports. And yet, he came through with help from Jerry Corrigan at the New York Fed. Uh, Volcker put every foot right. He did exactly the right thing to help calm markets on the Tuesday after Black Monday and suddenly made everybody look at him in a in a fresh and novel way. And the reputation that ultimately perhaps became too greatly enhanced over the decades began there. Wouldn't you think that uh, Greenspan had the perfect personality for an event of that significance. He certainly was one of three people who I think played an important role in um, that that psychological factor that you're so clearly pointing to. I mean, you were one of the people at the time, Arthur, who realized that there was a leadership vacuum in Washington. President Reagan was distracted by his wife's illness. She had had cancer for breast surgery on Black Monday. The answers he shouted out to the press corps back and forth between the hospitals sounded 
out of touch and and ill-advised and uh, there was there was a sense that you know nobody in Washington knew what was going on the SEC chair was only 10 weeks in office uh, the secretary of the treasury had gone hunting with the king of sweden i mean it, it was a it, it was a day when nobody was at the you know at their desks where they needed to be and into that leadership crisis stepped some unexpected heroes really alan greenspan was one of them with a calm uh, very erudite understanding of economics john phelan was another one of them he held the first ever live press conference from the New York Stock Exchange on the afternoon of Black Monday. His calm humor and his mastery of the facts made uh, everyone feel like you know there was a grown-up in charge here. And of course, uh, Jerry Corrigan at the New York Fed, in a more private role, was contacting bankers all across the country to reassure them and enforce in their minds the necessity to keep credit flowing to Wall Street so that things didn't just completely freeze up and fall apart. So we had some unexpected heroes step in, and Greenspan was certainly one of them, but they stepped in because no one else seemed to be stepping up. And in, in a crisis like this, you know, it's panic is an emotion. It's not a rational response. It's an emotion. And you need that calm voice from the cockpit that says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're experiencing some turbulence, but we'll be able to fly through it very soon. And those were the, the voices that stood out in 1987. And similarly, Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke, two totally unexpected, uh, you know, voices from the cockpit, stepped forward in 2008. Um, we're going to need that kind of leadership when we have our next financial crisis. You've just recited a pantheon of great leaders, but could you ask for anything better than Volcker and Greenspan at that point in time? Well, for the the monetary side of it, uh, Arthur, no. However, it was more than a monetary problem. It was yes, it was important that credit be provided and that it find its way to the Wall Street firms and the financial entities that needed it. Um, but you also needed people who understood market machinery. Uh, how how the markets actually functioned behind the scenes, all that plumbing that we pay no attention to until it breaks and blows a gasket, and those were that was why it was important to have people like Bob Birnbaum, Dick Grasso, uh, uh, John Phelan, yourself, uh, Bill Brodsky at the Chicago. Your, your Merck. memory is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> well, I was able to talk to a lot of these people in in uh, in my research for this book, including yourself, and the the thing that struck me most of all, was that for almost everyone I talked to, this day, this week, those weeks around Black Monday were the most unforgettable of their careers. It, it was an indelible experience. And the, um, the, the extempor, extemporized and, and ad hoc steps that they took to try to hold things together are seared in their memory. I mean, midnight handshakes that, that allowed a, a, an options firm to a, apply profits against what it owed the Chicago Merck when it normally wouldn't be able to do so. Uh, middle of the night uh, mergers of specialist firms on the New York Stock Exchange to save them from failing. Um, I, the lesson I hope people will take away from this story is you can't write a rule book for the next crisis. It won't send you a save-the-date card. You need to have um, 
leadership in place who understand how to work together, how to improvise, try something. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, throw it out and try something else. Because even in 87, these crises unfold and unravel very fast. And in today's you know, hyper-connected world with social media and instant access to your data. I mean, you, you know what it would be to have Black Monday again. You look at your phone about, you know, mid-afternoon and, and you look and the Dow is down almost 5,000 points. That's what Black Monday today would be. You write in your book, Diana, that Black Monday did not lead to any significant reforms. Why was that? Well, I... I wish I had the silver bullet answer so that we would never fall prey to that again. I think part of it was that the feared recession um, that economists started to worry about on the morning happen. of Black Monday immediately didn't didn't happen nationally. As you know, New York City was hit severely by all the layoffs and closure, from closures that followed uh, the crash. New York City had a little, its own little localized recession, um, and other financial centers were hard hit as well. But it, didn't, it wasn't like the Great Depression as they feared it would be. Um, the the uh, end of the Cold War in the following decades certainly uh, gave an enormous boost to confidence and to the stock market in general. So markets kind of rolled along. But what bothers me, Arthur, is this confusion between, you know, markets going up and down and markets coming together and falling apart. And what happened on Black Monday wasn't that the market fell. It was that it almost fell apart. The the structure of the market the the gears, the cogs, the 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 systems that held it together were almost overwhelmed by the avalanche of selling. And so when the stock prices started to recover in the stock market, I think the erroneous assumption was, well, it's fixed. It's cured itself. You know, the market is magically mended and we just roll on. And that assumption was made because prices had gone up, not because structural weaknesses had been fixed. And in fact, they haven't been fixed to this day. One of the uh, primary recommendations of the Brady Commission in the aftermath of the 1987 crash was to say that we have this fragmented, balkanized regulatory system that's trying to regulate what is, in fact, one marketplace with all the same players trading all sorts of different asset classes all the time. We need a unified regulator. That didn't happen in 87. Fast forward to 2008. After the 2008 crisis, former Secretary John of uh, the Treasury John Snow and Chris Cox, your uh, uh, successor, one of your successors in the SEC chair, testified before Congress. This system is too balkanized. It's fragmented. No one can get a 360-degree view. We need to fix that. We didn't do anything. And just in recent weeks, the beginning of October, Arthur, a new report was released by the U.S. Treasury and the Trump administration saying that one of the significant challenges to markets today was overlapping mandates and jurisdictional friction that made it difficult to regulate the modern market we have now. So here we are 30 years later, and we're still looking 
at a Rube Goldberg regulatory contraption where banks have their own little set of regulators and stock markets have their own regulators and um, commodity futures and derivatives have their own regulators and some aren't regulated at all. And time and again, people say, this doesn't give regulators enough time. It doesn't give us enough um, of, a, of a perspective. We, it doesn't give us a, a vantage point on where fires are breaking out so we can address them before they spread. Regulation occurs only in a time of crisis, and sometimes it's really short-sighted. You allude to the fact that we have both a CFTC and an SEC which is really lunacy. We should have one agency, but because it's a honeypot for raising money, the Congress is unwilling to do that. That won't change until we have a really catastrophic event, which I hope I don't live to see. Well, Um, I I share your concern, Arthur. I mean, certainly, if you look at the most uh, dramatic change in in market regulation that's occurred um, in the nation's history, it occurred in 1933 and 34 with the, with the creation of the SEC and the establishment of federal laws that governed securities trading and issuing. And of course, that happened because of the because the nation was on its knees. One out of every four American out of, out of work. I mean, the Great Depression was such a catastrophic event that in the aftermath of that, there was a a necessity to change, as as Roosevelt said, you know, you, you you've got to try something. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, try something else. But for heaven's sakes, try something. And in that environment, we did try something. I guess in a way, we've been cursed by our good luck. We have not had um, as deep and and severe a dislocation of our financial systems since uh, the 1930s. And yet, and therefore, we have not had sufficient political will to address the need for modernization and reform. I I hope that um, we're not going to fall prey to that old adage that you know experience is a hard school, but fools will learn and no other. I hope we can learn from experience by maybe reading about it, and I hope that this book will help educate people. Um, who don't remember Black Monday, to its to see its lessons, to see what it was trying to show us about the future we're living in right now, and what a dramatic change that was from the way we think markets work. We're still regulating, Arthur, the market of the 1970s. We're not regulating the market of the, of the 21st century. And um, if this book could just open a few eyes about... Um, how we got here and the risks we have carried along the road every step of the way with us, then I will be satisfied. She's an award-winning financial journalist and best-selling author of five financial histories, including the story of Bernie Madoff, Wizard of Lies. Her newest book, A First-Class Catastrophe, is about Black Monday, a cautionary tale of how the U.S. financial system nearly collapsed. She traces in vivid detail the human and structural errors that led to the crash of 1987. 
and she says that we can't turn the page on this event as we are still living in that world. Diana, thanks for joining us. It was a delight, Arthur. Thanks for having me. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. <laughs>